Well, let's pray one more time. And as we open the word together, we need God's help, don't we? So let's pray for his guidance and care. Father, as we come again to your word, it is with hope and expectation that you will speak to us. You have taught us that this word is alive and powerful, sharp enough to to penetrate to the deepest recesses of soul and spirit, those secret places where that physical part and spiritual part of what you've created us to be is joined. Oh, how we need to be touched in those deep places. We need to be touched with conviction because we are not what we ought to be. And even as we just sang in prayer, a prayer of confession that all of those secret sins, those things that we want to keep hidden, whether because we're ashamed of them or we're embarrassed or we just don't want anybody else to to know what we're really like. It's all open and exposed before your eyes. And we ask that you would convict us of that sin so that we might experience the power of your forgiveness, the cleansing from that real guilt that we carry in our souls, the relief that comes through your forgiveness. Oh, Lord God, would you touch us in that way? And then we pray, Father, that by your word you would touch us in those places where our hearts are tender, where we are perhaps sorrowing, grieving, where we feel deep anxiety and frustration, and we just need the comfort and consolation of your word. Come, Spirit of God, and apply that consoling, powerful word. Others need to be strengthened in spirit and in mind and in heart. And through your word and its power, we pray that you would put that divine energy into us so that we could go forward in faith obeying your word as you reveal it to us, taking those steps of faith that would honor you, speaking boldly for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Oh, how we need you. And our need, our need will be met in your word if you will come now and speak to us. Thank you that it is your eternal purpose and your kind intention. We pray for mission partners who also are ministering the word of Christ around the world today. We think of the Karpenkos and the Grings and for the Rogers. And thank you for their faithfulness in gospel ministry through the years. And as they have opportunity on this day to preach and teach, and for some of them it's, it's, uh, it's already come and gone, we ask that you would cause the ministry of the word to bear fruit, the fruit of salvation as people repent and believe, the fruit of Christian maturity as believers respond in faith to the word that they have heard on this day. Would you provide for them? Would you protect them and keep them by your powerful word? It's our privilege, Father, to be partnered with so many around the world. And though we love this little church, it is just one local manifestation of the greater work that Jesus Christ is doing to build his church. Thank you for his promise that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Thank you that he has said his word is eternal and it will endure forever. Thank you that as we read earlier and then sang in response, he is the worthy one. He alone is worthy to receive honor and glory and power and blessing. And so we exalt his name and we praise you for all that you are for us, Lord Jesus. Come now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Mark 6, Mark 6, and if you do not have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to take one of those uh, copies from the book rack and the seats in front of you. As I say almost every week, if you do not own a copy of the Bible, we would be glad for you to take that with you and just keep it, begin to read it. We don't want it to just be a coffee table decoration for you in your home, but it is the living word and it is what we are seeking to understand and know and live here at Gospel Hope Church. Well, we've made our way through verse 6 of Mark's gospel, and here in chapter 6, or I should say we've made our way through chapter 6, we're all the way to verse 6, and as we were looking last week at this Part of Mark's gospel account, Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth and he was rejected. 
People who had grown up with him just could not bring together the fact that he was performing great miracles as had been recorded. And then he showed up on their Sabbath day and taught powerful words in the synagogue. And it just defied their understanding. There were a series of questions there that they began to ask. But sadly, they are offended by him, scandalized, if you will. And Jesus turns around in verse 6, and he marvels because of their unbelief. And that's where we left off Mark's gospel last week. Now notice verse 6 and the second part. He went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now it's important for us at this moment, because this marks a a new epic, if you will, in Christ's ministry with these disciples. Some of you were here back in January when Matt preached from Mark's uh, gospel, chapter 3, and part of the section he covered uh, included verses 13 and 14, where Jesus went up on the mountain and he called these 12 in particular. And the testimony of Mark's gospel is that he appointed these 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. But up until this point, they've only been with him. To our understanding, they haven't formally begun to preach the kind of gospel message that Jesus was preaching and teaching in all of these communities and cities and villages where he'd been going. Well, now's the moment. So that purpose that he had from actually long ago, not just back in chapter 3, but the purpose long ago to gather disciples, to begin to train them by his example, to begin to train them by his teaching, he now turns into a call. You know, if you compare Mark's account in chapter 6 to Matthew's gospel in chapter 9 and verses 35 and 38, Matthew gives a little more of the context out of which Jesus calls his disciples into this particular moment of ministry. Let me read Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, that's almost identical to what we read in verse 6, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now listen to this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, a lot of times we stop right there, and that's a valid point. It's the word of Jesus. Pray that he will send laborers into the harvest. What harvest are we talking about? A spiritual harvest. The harvest of souls. People who need to know about Jesus, who need to understand that their sins make them accountable to God and actually could ultimately bring condemnation, eternal judgment, torment. All those things are found in the, in the scriptures. But we have this message of hope, of forgiveness, of eternal life that Jesus offers. And so he says, pray that I, as the Lord of the harvest, will send out laborers. It's a good thing to do. But as Matthew continues that story, he goes exactly where Mark does. So Mark doesn't include everything that Jesus was saying at that point, but I think it's important for you to understand that Jesus has just looked upon a multitude of people scattered throughout these villages, and his heart yearns with compassion, and he says they're like sheep who have no shepherd. They need to be cared for. And his first word is pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers. We might even say pray in this sense that they'll have under-shepherds. Jesus is the one great shepherd, but he sends out others to shepherd them. So now when we resume the story, though, and you look at at verse 7, you notice a couple of things that, that Jesus begins to do. He calls the disciples into strategic mission. It's very simple. Look at verse 7 with me. He issues, first of all, a divine summons. He called the twelve. 
and began to send them out two by two. This word that we translate call speaks of a divine call, and it's used in other places in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. You'll see it occurring where, where these same disciples and others who have joined the group at that particular point feel this great divine responsibility. There's a divine summons. It's not just a suggestion on Jesus' part, but he, as the king of glory, says to them, I have work for you to do. I think it's important that as we read this, we don't stand outside of it as, as third-party observers, but that you let this word of Jesus begin to resonate in your heart and say, Lord Jesus, what is your call on my life? What is your divine summons for me? The particular nature of this call does reach into our generation and even this assembly. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And then Mark records that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Well, that would be a second thought for us. He delegates divine authority. How amazing is that? I mean, these are the same disciples who just a few verses before, just a couple of chapters back, stood in awe as Jesus calmed the storm that they thought was going to kill them. These are the disciples who've been with him when he encountered the demon-possessed man who was possessed by maybe a, a couple of thousand demons. Remember that story? The, the, the demoniac identified, well, the, the demons identified themselves as legion. We are many. And Jesus cast them out. They've been in awe that he has the power to heal the woman who for 12 years had this, this debilitating illness. It was debilitating spiritually and it was debilitating physically. It had bankrupted her. A hemorrhage that no physician could, could treat or stop. But Jesus, just out of his divine power, in a moment heals her. And then we've just seen him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And now he says to them, look at the text, and just, just let this kind of sink into your soul. Gave them authority over the unclean spirits. It's a powerful moment. He sends them out with his authority. It's important for us to remember that the mission that Jesus is sending them on is an extension of what he's already been doing. We've watched him just intentionally engage darkness. And he is now multiplying his ministry through these particular disciples. It's a deeper insurgency, if you will, into the kingdom of darkness that for too long had held its sway over the people of Israel. It's a reminder to us, too, that King Jesus wields an authority over every principality and power. He's not one of a number of powerful beings in the universe. He is the supreme one. And as powerful as Satan may be, as powerful as the demons uh, and the principalities and powers of darkness may be, they are so far inferior to Jesus that the gap is infinite. And now he delegates his authority to these finite men. Well, look at verse 8. He calls them to a divine mission. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no, belt, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And again, that word charged, it, it kind of picks up that feeling of the, the term call in verse 7. This is a this is a, a divine announcement of what must be done. Now, notice three things, if you will, with me. First of all, he tells them what to pack. It's kind of an odd list, isn't it? You know, actually, and I won't take a lot of time to do this, but if you were to compare this with Exodus 12, 11, it's, it's, it's nearly identical to what God said to Israel as they were preparing to exit Egypt. And he limited the things that they should take with them uh, for urgency's sake and also dependency. You can see those two key ideas there. And this is a short-term mission, all right? Let's be honest. Jesus is not saying, hey, I want you to go out and travel to the far reaches of the world and I'll see you in eternity. It is a short-term mission, but nonetheless, these four items, as one author writes, recall the haste and expectation of the exodus. 
They suggest that the mission of the Twelve announces something as foundational and revelatory as the exodus from Egypt, and that the disciples must be as free from encumbrances as were the Israelites to serve their God in a new venture. He goes on to write, If they go with an elaborate support system and provisions for every eventuality, then they need not go in faith, and apart from faith, their proclamation is not believable. It's the difference between saying, we've got a short-term mission, and there's an urgent mission, we need to just take the bare essentials and packing up a big RV that you're going to park somewhere for days on end, and you, you know, you put your solar power units on top and tune the satellite dish so you can continue to watch March Madness. And uh, you stop at the grocery store and you're stocked up and, and you've thought of all the contingencies. And if it gets cold, we've got a little extra clothing to put on. And uh, if, you know, if this particular campground is full, we know there's another place. And, and you just so planned it out and so uh, prepared for every contingency that, I mean, you're just an enormous caravan. And all that stuff gets in the way of the mission. And the Lord Jesus is sending them for a very specific purpose. There's a sense of urgency. And so he tells them what to pack. So they're going to have a staff, walking staff. Probably, you know, might, one commentator note, uh, or noted that it might even been a, a, a means of protection. Some of you who have walked neighborhoods know that dogs come out and do what dogs do, and bad dogs do scary and hurtful things. So maybe the staff would have been for protection there. Sandals, because you need to protect your feet. And they obviously have belts around their garment. He told them don't put money in the belt, but there's a belt. And then there is a tunic. He just said don't take a second one. You just take this bare minimum and you go. What to pack communicates that sense of urgency and dependency. And then along with that, he tells them where to stay. And this is interesting. And can you imagine receiving this? And it might have been a little easier for them in their particular day and age, but at, I don't know that we should just say, oh, well, that was the norm. But he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And again, if you compare this to some of the other Gospels, there are a few other little instructions that give us the idea that they were just supposed to go into a community and basically say, can you give me a place to stay? And if, you know, I meet Seth for the first time and he says, sorry, no room here, then I, you know, go to the next option. Can you give me a place to stay? And Kristen says, no, you, you guys are a little scary to me. And then, and then Carmen says, oh, we would love for you to stay. And she opens her home. And so we, by faith, step in there, even though we may not have ever met one another before. And then as we begin to talk, and we have this divine message from Jesus, and we begin to share with Carmen and her household, and if they begin to receive it and say, oh, tell us more, then we know we were really supposed to be here, park it, stay here for a while. So as those who were called, these disciples went in faith and trust, trusting that the Lord who was calling them into this ministry was going to prepare things on the other side. That's radical, isn't it? I mean, it just seems a little presumptuous, if not crazy and careless. One author writes, trust in the Jesus who sends them into mission includes trust in those whom he has designated to meet their needs. That little word stay communicates so much of Christ's care and his control. You know, when God calls you to a particular task, he always provides everything you need. We have to be careful to submit our list to him because sometimes his list of provision is shorter than ours would be. Although often he adds stuff we never would have expected and makes the journey itself sweeter and more comfortable, more satisfying. But there are other times where he is so intent on the mission that he says, it's going to be a Spartan provision, but you're going to have what you need. Do you trust him in that way? Some of you may be at a bit of a crossroads in your faith saying, you know, God, I'm willing to do what you asked me to do, but I'd like to see it up front. He doesn't tell them who they're going to stay with. He doesn't apparently pass out assignments and say, you know, um, Peter and Andrew, 
when you make this little three-mile journey up the road and you come to this particular village, I want you to check in with the so-and-sos. And, and I've sent word ahead, and they've prepared a you know, really comfortable little guest quarters for you. And she's a great cook, by the way. You're going to love her falafel. Um, there's none of that recorded. He just says, go. Where to stay. But then notice, thirdly, when and how to leave. And that communicates that there are limits to their ministry, and they do have personal responsibility, but even that responsibility has a limit. Jesus says, when you leave, shake, or if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is, I need to give you a little bit of uh, cultural background on this. The Jewish people were so intent on keeping their land ceremonial and spiritually clean that if they traveled into other countries and then came back into the land, they would uh, somewhat symbolically but also physically shake the dust off of their feet, their sandals, to leave the pagan land and culture behind and not to pollute their holy land. So Jesus is drawing on that cultural practice, but it's actually sobering to listen to him state those words because, as one author writes, this is a searing indictment. This commandment is tantamount to declaring that a Jewish village, because their assignment is within Israel, that from Christ's perspective, that Jewish village, similar to Nazareth, we've just seen them reject Jesus, but because they reject this gospel message, is spiritually heathen. There's no record that they did this in a public way where people would have seen it, but it is recorded in the Word of God, and it does make me wonder, were there occasions where they left villages and, and shook the dust off of their feet as they left that village, and if people were there watching it, what, what would that have made them think? This author goes on to write, it would provide warning that the disciples had fulfilled their responsibility and that those who had rejected the mission would have to answer to God. That's a sobering reminder to all of us, and we've encountered this before in Mark's gospel, that when we hear the truth, God expects us to respond in faith and obedience, doesn't he? A sobering question for each of us to ask is, am I receiving God's word in faith? Or has my response been worthy of Jesus himself shaking the dust off his feet? as he exits my heart. There's no guarantee that Jesus will come day after day for all the days of your life that are left and speak truth and deliver that gospel of repentance and faith to you. And some of you have said no to him, maybe to the point where he would say, you've said no, I'll give you what you want. I will not come back with the message. Oh, what a frightful condition. Each of us needs to be careful how we hear. So there it is. It's a divine call to strategic mission. And look at verse 12. Because they go do it. The simple record is that they proclaim that people should repent. And that reminds us that the, the mission itself centers in gospel proclamation. Even the mighty works that they're about to do are, are secondary in one sense to this message. And we've seen that from the beginning of Mark's gospel. Jesus came to preach and teach that message of repentance and belief in this kingdom that he brings. You know, this will continue. One of my favorite passages from Paul's letter to the Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 1 verses 23 and 24 and there Paul says we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles or foolishness to Gentiles but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God 
to many people, this message seems ridiculous. To, to Jewish people, it's offensive that someone would say this great Jewish rabbi named Jesus died for your sins. That offends the Jewish mind and heart. That's why they would view it, as Paul says, as a stumbling block. It scandalizes their sense of Judaism. And for the Greeks or for the Gentiles, it's tantamount to one of us saying uh, that criminal that was just executed, electric chair or lethal injection, oh, he's our hero, and you know, he actually died to rescue us from our sins. That that death on the cross was so offensive to the Gentile culture that they would say that is foolishness. But in every culture, there have always been those who hear this message of Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross for their sins, of his powerful resurrection from the dead, and their hearts are awakened in faith, and they say, that's, that's my life, that's my hope. It doesn't scandalize my heart or my soul. It doesn't create a, a foolish offense in my thinking. It is the hope I've been longing for. And so these disciples go out and they proclaim that people should repent. That word repentance means very simply to not only be sorrowful for our sin, but to actually turn from sin to God. I wonder if you've ever repented of your sin. Sometimes we excuse it. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we even, because we can compare ourselves to others and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. It, it minimizes it. We don't feel so badly about ourselves. But you know, ultimately your sin is an issue with God. He never excuses or minimizes it. And if you're not sure about how seriously he takes our sin, you can look one of two directions. The first would be the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus suffered and died a horrific death. And that actually, according to God's word, is a just punishment for sin. The second place you can look is to the eternal suffering that God creates in hell. The very place that Jesus spoke of and said, do not fear the one who can destroy your body. Fear the one who has the power to cast you into hell. The place that Jesus also said is eternal torment. A worm, a symbol of death and decay doesn't die. The fire is never extinguished. And sometimes we say, how can it be just for God to send anyone to an eternal place of torment when even the sins we've committed, bad as they may be, have been confined to a limited number of days in this lifetime? How is that just that even if I live to be 90 years old in my rebellion, that God might cast me into hell forever? Well, it's not about your nature as the offender. It's about his nature as the offended one. And when you offend the eternal God, you've created an eternal offense. An eternal debt has to be paid. And according to God in his perfect wisdom, hell is just. What what an overwhelming thought. What a horrific thought. These disciples are on mission, proclaiming that people should repent, in part that they, might, that they might turn out of that way of destruction and experience the power of God's forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. The mission centers in gospel proclamation. Second of all, the mission includes powerful works. Look at verse 13. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they're doing the very kinds of things that Jesus has been doing. The delegated authority that he had sent them with is effectively at work. One author writes, the twelve are not sent to do a new work, but to continue and extend the work begun by Jesus. That even includes the places in which they minister. For they're not sent to the urban centers like Tiberias or Sephoris, but to the villages where Jesus has been. The accent falls not on innovation, but on the full representation of the one who commissioned them. Jesus bestows authority on believers so that they may participate and further his ministry. That's such an important point, and we'll spend a little bit of time in conclusion looking at even some of the, the present-day applications for Gospel Hope Church as an assembly and for us personally. God is not calling you into a kind of ministry where you want to build people uh, or gain a following for yourself. 
We're not here as a church uh, because Daniel and Kevin and Matt and I want to have a group of people who can say, that's our church. No, we are here because Jesus continues to build his church. Now, it's at this point, we might expect there to be a glorious report of thousands of people converting from Judaism or paganism or other different ways of faith and life. But that's not what we read next in Mark's gospel, is it? What follows next is actually a reality check for those who would follow Jesus and make his work and mission of proclaiming repentance their own work and mission. Look at the text, and I do not have these words to put up on the screen, so please follow along. Verse 14 tells us, King Herod heard of it, that is, heard of this work that Jesus and the disciples are doing. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now Mark's going to give us a little backstory from that. Okay, So we're backing up in chronology. We're backing up in time right now. You you say, wait a second, Herod, uh, Herod had him beheaded. What was that all about? Well, here's the story. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now this gets a little confusing. The the family tree for Herod's household is really twisted and perverted. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias who was previously married, married to Philip, who's Herod's half-brother, okay? And both of those guys are sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, I'll give you a little history here. Herod the Great is the Herod who was alive and in power when Jesus was born. It was Herod the Great that the wise men came to and said, where's he that's born king of the Jews? And Herod the Great uh, was in a rage. And remember, he had... All the, all the boys under two years old in Bethlehem killed. He wanted to eliminate the rival king. Well, Herod the Great was not only wicked and evil in that regard, he was wicked and evil in that he had ten wives. And two of those wives bore him sons. One is this Herod, who is also known as Antipas. And then there's another son, Philip. All right? Sons from different mothers, but Herod the Great is their father. And apparently... Uh, This Herod Antipas went to visit his brother, and while he was there, met Herodias, who was married to Philip at that time, and uh, made a proposal that they each should divorce their spouses, because Herod Antipas had a wife uh, back in Israel, and, um, and Herodias agreed. So Herod Antipas went home, he divorces, Herodias divorces, and then they get married. Well, John the Baptist, who's a prophet of God, doesn't care that this is a Roman ruler. This Roman ruler is in God's land, in Israel, ruling over Jewish people, and apparently John the Baptist had repeatedly gone to him and said, it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's calling him to repent. He's holding him accountable to Old Testament law. You can look at Leviticus, where this kind of thing is forbidden. Well, it's so angered Herodias that she wants this guy put to death. Herod is apparently so intrigued by this man, because remember, he's the the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, dressed in camel skin, you know, eats locusts and honey. People go out to him to hear him preach. He's baptizing, and Herod's just intrigued with the guy. He doesn't want to kill him, but he decides, ah, compromise. Keep my wife happy enough, so I'll put him in prison, but I can still hear him from time to time and uh, just see you know, what might come of this. So that's kind of the backstory that Mark is giving us. And verse 19 says, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This is a conflicted man. 
This is a man who is both prisoner to his lusts, his appetites for pleasure, for whatever this world affords, but he listens to John, and there's something in his soul that is intrigued, but it, it puts him in this place that Mark describes as being perplexed. He's just like, he doesn't know what to do, doesn't know what to make of all this, so consequently he doesn't do anything other than try to keep Herodias somewhat happy and make sure he doesn't kill the man who clearly has God's power on him. Verse 21, but an opportunity came, and the opportunity has reference to Herodias. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, and this would have been a daughter not that she had with Herod, but probably with Philip prior to her divorce and remarriage. This daughter, who we believe was named Salome, she came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry Get this, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his, that is John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So now we've backed all the way up to the point of understanding how is it that John the Baptist lost his life? And are you seeing the connection? He ultimately lost his life because he preached repentance to a powerful man. And that's a reminder to us. The mission includes personal cost. This story, I am confident, is inserted lest we begin to think of, you know what, if I follow Jesus, maybe I get supernatural power. And boy, if I could cast out demons and heal people, oh, I could gain a following. And when you gain a following, there's fame and probably some fortune that goes with it. And you know, your mind begins to scheme. This thing of following Jesus may not be such a bad gig after all. And Jesus reminds us that if you follow him as a true disciple, it may actually cost you everything. And to be faithful to preach a message of repentance, which rarely, if ever, is a popular message, a message that people say, hey, would you come and preach about how bad we are? Would you just kind of load the freight train with all of God's law and let it just crash headlong into our souls that we may know how guilty and vile and deserving of God's wrath and judgment we are? Yeah, that's, that's a kind of Sunday morning experience. We all woke up today saying, God, bring it. <laughs> but do you know what? If you're not willing to hear the message that first comes through God's law that says you are worse than you ever imagined and your sin has not just offended family and friends around you or co-worker, co-workers or an employer, but it has offended the Most High God. And unless you repent, you will die in your sins and you will perish. Unless you're willing to hear that, then there is no good news that comes after that that says, but Jesus died for you. God actually made him to be sin for you in order that you might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. Until you're willing to own the fact that you are wretched and vile in your sin, the, the message of repentance and then faith in Jesus just kind of seems like another option that's out there. But those who are willing to say, I am in serious trouble before the God who created me because I've broken all of his law. Is there hope and help? Oh, there's such good news. The good news is Jesus. Aren't you glad that God never said, you know, you've, you've blown it a thousand times? 
So go do a thousand good things. Let's balance out the scales. No, he tells you, come to Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life. He didn't simply do a thousand good things to balance out your thousand evil deeds. He fulfilled the entire law. And if you're willing to repent, God's willing to credit your account with all of that righteousness of Jesus. That's why we preach repentance. Because we want to get to the really good stuff about Jesus. But make no mistake, if you follow Jesus, if you become a true disciple, you're not only being called to proclaim his message, you're not only given his delegated power, and if you should need to cast out a demon or heal somebody, I'll guarantee you the, the authority's there. We don't see it every day. It's not a part of our you know, day-to-day routine, but the, the same authority that Jesus delegated to those disciples has been delegated to all of his followers in every age, I believe. But just know also that the mission will include great personal cost. It's a vivid foreshadowing of what Jesus will say to us in Mark 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, taking up the cross of discipleship and following Jesus may cost you everything in this life, but it positions you to gain everything in the life to come. It's a gruesome picture and and such a sorrowful moment that the greatest man ever born to woman, because that's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Did you know that? Jesus said there's been none greater than John born to a woman. It seems like such a, a tragic and pointless ending, yet it was for the glory of God and the testimony of his gospel. And John has entered into eternal life. And he will have a glorified body after that final resurrection like every other person who puts their faith in Jesus. And from his perspective, if he could speak to us now, he would say, such a small and momentary loss in comparison to what I've gained So then we read verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So it was an exciting moment. But it's tempered by the fact that whether it be from Herod's palace to a village like Nazareth or other communities like the one in the Decapolis that though they saw the man who was formerly demon-possessed healed, restored, sitting, clothed in his right mind, and they said, no, Jesus, please depart from our country. You know, following, following Jesus doesn't mean that everybody who hears your message believes and puts their faith in him. It doesn't mean that everybody who, who comes under your ministry becomes your partner in all of that. It, it can cost a good deal. It's still the call of Christ. And you know, Jesus is calling us to the same divine mission today. Some of you say, but, but I'm not ready. I, I'm not skilled enough or, or knowledgeable enough. Are you telling me that, that we got to do something now? Well, let me encourage you. The sending of the 12 appears premature and may catch us by surprise, this author writes. For the record of the disciples to date has not been reassuring. Heretofore, they have impeded Jesus' mission back in chapter 1. They had become exasperated with him in chapter 4 and chapter 5. They'd even opposed him back in chapter 3. Their perception of Jesus has been and will continue to be marked by misunderstanding. We're going to hit a number of verses in chapter 8 in a few more weeks where they, they just don't get it. The willingness of Jesus to abide the intractable nature and behavior of his followers is further testimony to his divine humility. And then listen to this. 
the sending of these particular individuals and at this stage of their understanding of Jesus testifies that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of the missionaries, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. That's why ordinary, imperfect people like us can and must respond to the call. He never had a different plan. He's not looking for theological PhDs or seminary graduates who've got all the answers, who can preach perfect messages, who can give the gospel from A to Z, you know, in five minutes or less without hesitating on one particular point or reference. He's looking for ordinary people just like you who will walk out of an assembly like this and say, okay, Lord, who is it today? And if it's not today, who is it for tomorrow? It may be just a little brief word where you tell them what Jesus has done for you. It may be a long conversation where they ask questions and just, just tee it up for you, as Matt would say. Teeing up, that's one of your phrases. And, and you just open your Bible and you say, here it is. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he has done. This is what he commands. This is what he offers. And this is where it can bless you. And they listen to it and they say, that's awesome. I believe every part of that. But we're it. You're it. The fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of you as an individual, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. Uncomprehending and ill-prepared disciples nevertheless typify believers in every age and place who are sent out by the Lord of the harvest. No matter how much exegesis, theology, and counseling one has studied, one is never prepared for ministry. A genuine call to ministry always calls us to that for which we are not adequately prepared. It is only in awareness of such that the Christian experiences the presence and promise of Jesus Christ and learns to depend not on human capabilities but on the one who calls and in the power of the proclamation to authenticate itself. You know what's so cool to me? That picture of these disciples going out, staff, sandals, one belt around one tunic, I mean, they're, they're not adequately prepared. Oh, but they are. And so are you. I hope that will create a little bit of a, a visual image because I'm sure every one of those pairs as they went out felt like, don't we at least need lunch? I mean, a few shekels in the belt, that just seems reasonable. And don't you wonder, because you know how we are. Do you remember a year ago when, when we were actually like going door to door in the community just saying, hi, we're from Gospel Hope Church. And some of you were terrified. And I won't name names, but there are certain parties in our family who enjoyed it more than others. And some were like, no, you go to the door. You go to the door. So I even wonder if, you know, walking into the villages, I, I don't doubt Peter was always saying stuff. So this is a no-brainer. When Peter walked in the village, he's like, hey, who's putting us up for the night? <laughs> but I'll guarantee you there were some others who were like, are you going to ask? I don't want to ask. You ask. <laughs> They're human, just like you and me. But they did it. And they came back and reported to Jesus that things happened that they never could have planned for, prepared for. And that's because they were learning that when Christ calls you, he really does equip you, and that his message in and of itself, it is authoritative, authoritative and it is power from God. So just go, and open your mouth in faith and hope, and you feel like you're standing there equipped for nothing, and Jesus is saying, you've got everything. Now what does it mean? really practically for us. Well, first of all, let's talk about the mission at Gospel Hope. Every day, every day, you and I are on mission. Every day, you and I are on mission. Matt said it often, 100% of the people here do 100% of the work. So we're looking for all hands on deck. Um, and to help some of you, I say, man, I don't know where to begin. You know, we have a little bit of gospel literature on that back table. Just take one of those, and, and when you have an opportunity, say to somebody, could I give you something to read? And the next step would be, could I read something with you? And then you open it and you read through. 
And then you're going to start developing your own little presentation, things that are really meaningful to you about Jesus. Just start talking and sharing. Let's talk about this summer. We'll save it more next week, but I feel like I want to prime the pump a little bit. Some of you were with us a year ago, and we had a series of Thursday nights. Did we, we did a couple of Wednesday nights, maybe even, in there. Uh, but we went to Riverton City Park, and we barbecued a couple of nights. We had music a couple of nights, but we were there. And it's a great way for some of you to get your feet wet, because you're like, I can't do this on my own. Then join the crowd and learn how to do it, and in time you will. Plant camps. You say, what are plant camps? We're not into horticulture around here. Uh, plant camp actually refers to church planting camp. And this summer we're hosting two weeks again where youth groups primarily from a number of other churches are coming in. They'll spend a week with us and we're going to do some preaching and teaching and training, but they're also going to be out in the neighborhoods helping us do ministry, giving the gospel, sharing it. One of the things that we'll do in each of those weeks and then even beyond those weeks will be to host backyard Bible clubs. And some of you had experience with that last summer. It was just great seeing little kids come and parents be present. It's just another way to tell people about Jesus, to tell them who he is, what he has done. So in the near future, we've got some really important things. Longer term, in the coming years, and this is, this is a commitment that our church has made already and will continue to do. We're going to be training interns. Our first one comes the first week of June. We'll introduce Andrew Smith to all of you. We're excited for that. We also want to train and ordain pastors, as God allows us to do. We're, we're taking the baton from Trinity Baptist and... Uh, with Paul Folks, he's actually going to be ordained to gospel ministry in a couple more weeks, and we're excited about that. We'll tell you more about that. And then we want to be a church that plants other churches. We want to be a church that helps to revitalize other churches. So those are some of the ways that we're actually going to commit ourselves to being on mission as Jesus has called us. Those are big things, and they merit a lot more conversation than what I can give right now. But I want to remind you of this in closing. Jesus is calling you to count the cost of the divine mission. And you may say, I'm not ready, I'm not skilled enough, I'm not knowledgeable enough, but let me remind you again, the sending of these particular individuals and at this stage of their understanding of Jesus testifies that the fulfillment of the word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of the missionary, but on the the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. You just got to keep that in focus. All right, stand with me one more time and I'm going to send you with a word of blessing. This is Aaron's blessing, the first high priest uh, in Israel, and God spoke to the people through Aaron, and these were his words. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and may he give you his peace. Good morning.